This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and I am a host of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Angela Jones with me to discuss her book, Camming, Money, Power, and Pleasure in the Sex Work Industry, which was published just this year by New York University Press. Dr. Jones is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Farmingdale State College, a state university of New York school. She is a researcher there, as well as a professor, and her interests include African-American political thought and protest, race, gender, sexuality, sex work, technology studies, and queer methodologies and theory. Dr. Jones is the author of African-American Civil Rights, Early Activism, and the Niagara Movement, published by Prager 2011. She is co-editor of the three volumes After Marriage Equality book series, published by Rutledge in 2018. Dr. Jones has also added two other anthologies, The Modern African-American Political Thought Reader, From David Walker to Barack Obama, published by Rutledge in 2012, and A Critical Inquiry into Queer Utopias, published by Palgrave in 2013. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Jones. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's really wonderful to be talking with you today. Um, and thanks for that introduction. Um, so I guess I'll just add that in addition to my research background, um, I guess I'll add that I've been teaching in public higher ed for 14 years, and I also very much so love that part of my job uh, as a professor. I'm a parent to an amazing eight-year-old named Jordan. Um, I love the outdoors. I mean, I could keep going, but, but I'll stop there. Yes, all of those things are important. It makes uh, us more human as professors and as writers. So, and all of that contributes to each other. I, I think that it's nice to recognize our whole life uh, right. and how all parts of our lives uh, contribute to each other. Uh, my writing and my research definitely adds adds to the conversation in my in my classroom. And without the classroom, I wouldn't have these ideas that I'm uh, that I'm exploring. Which I think takes us right into this book. Uh, how did you come about writing this book? Um, okay, so I began this project because of my students, right? Um, one student in particular, um, while several students have shared with me that I that they have worked as CAM models and frankly in other areas of sex work, there was one particular student who really introduced me to the CAMing industry. Um, as a matter of fact, Michael, I'd love to share that story if it's cool. That is fine with me. Great. Um, so it was about 2013 or so, and one of my favorite students stopped attending class. 
Um, and Alyssa had taken a couple of courses with me, um, you know, and over the years we had developed this really wonderful rapport. So when she stopped attending class midway through the semester, I sent her an email, you know, just to check in. I wanted to see if she was okay and, and certainly to make sure that she knew that if she returned to class, that I'd be happy to help her catch up on, you know, on the work that she had missed. Um, and she replied to me that she was well, but she asked if we could meet in person in the office because she was considering leaving college. And so I said, of course, right? We made an office appointment. We met the following week. Um, when we met, she shared with me that she had started camming. Um, and she explained that in the last month, right, before we had met, that she had made $10,000. And I mean, in my head, I thought, well, clearly I'm in the wrong line of work, right? Um, but I was also thinking, you know, given these high and given these high earnings, um, you know, again, would she continue to, to, to earn so much money? Um, but she had decided that given how much money she was making, that she'd decide to take a break from school. You know, and she told me that she could always return to school if the money that she was making didn't continue or if she, you know, grew tired of the work. So one of the things that stood out to me, you know, in that conversation we had in the office was that you know, she was basically saying that in addition to being profitable for her and incredibly lucrative, she was describing the work that she was doing online as fun, as easy, um, as giving her autonomy, um, as being empowering and, and, and as being pleasurable. You know, and so in the moment, I congratulated her on her success, and we remained in contact for some time. But th the point is, Alyssa's you know initial disclosure kind of struck me, and I thought, well, ten thousand dollars a month for being a cam model, right? And again, I want to be clear: I don't think that she was lying about how much money she was making, but I did wonder, you know, was there a new online sex work industry that could promise people, you know, physical safety um, and high wages? Um, and so, again, Alyssa was not the only student who confided in me that they had worked as a CAM model. However, it was her disclosure that made me begin the research project. And, you know, and so to her, um, you know, I'll always kind of be grateful. And I'd like to um, begin when I'm talking about this book by giving her the credit, you know, for really introducing me to the industry. Yes, and that's uh, exactly what I was thinking as we started our conversation today about how our students really provide us with uh, intelligence that allow us to then go out and explore things that we would otherwise not be exposed to. So <laughs> That's right. Uh, so what is this cam industry? And uh, I wrote here that uh, when did it start first in the United States of America? But it's, uh, it's not just uh, – it's not just an industry here in the United States. Could you tell me a little bit more about what the cam industry is and where Absolutely. it has its roots at? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, and this is an important point. This is a global industry. Um, like many sex markets, um, this is a, a global industry. And I think it's important that we're thinking about these type of industries using a, a transnational framework. Um so I guess I'll start with the first question. Um, so the erotic cam industry, which um, which is colloquially called camming, um, is a genre of what we call indirect sex work uh, in which performers uh, called cam models um, from all over the globe, again, are selling interactive computer-mediated sex online. Um, and what I've been looking at is th the growth of the camming industry reflects an expansion of the online market of sexual commerce, right? So the camming industry has not replaced the demand for traditional pornography. It just simply offers sexual consumers 
an additional way to consume pornographic content online, right? So put another way, the, the camming is different from traditional pornography because it's interactive, right? These performances often consist of talking, striptease, um, and very often really sexually explicit shows. Um, on some cam sites, performers do these shows in a public chat room, and on others, they can also do them uh, in private shows. So what happens is the customer tips the cam models in an online currency generally called tokens. Um, if they're doing a private show on some cam sites, clients pay per minute. Um, and these rates can be really high. Right. So, for example, um, there's an entire chapter on the book that focuses on kink work um, and BDSM. And so, for example, the performers who do kink shows can charge, you know, upwards of $14.99 a minute for these interactive performances. Um, and again, and, and also some cam models do private shows on platforms such as Skype. Um, as for the second part of your question, as for when the industry emerged, um, the industry emerged about roughly 1996 and really because of two converging social phenomena. So one was the introduction of the internet um, and the popularity and two and the popularity of non-erotic cam girls in the United States in the mid-1990s. What I think is important, what I spend quite a bit of time developing in the book, especially in the early parts of the book, um, is that in the 21st century, as access to the internet became more widespread, e-commerce flourished, right, in general. And sex entrepreneurs and sex workers also started selling sex online. And so what I think is important um, is that technology has diversified forms of sex work, and the internet has helped to create new opportunities for sex entrepreneurs and workers to craft a labor environment that's more appealing to workers across social classes. So, for example, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Bernstein's work, who um, really demonstrated well and showed folks that, you know, increasingly sex work is appealing to middle class folks, right? Um, and that's what we're seeing here in this industry as well. Um, while there, and I think it's also important to note, while there are high earning models like Alyssa, in fact, I'm thinking of one model in the book who once made like $54,000 in one month, right? So these high earning wages, they do, they do exist, but most CAM models work part-time. Um, as an example uh, from the data, the median monthly earnings, um, for uh, across uh, the CAM models uh, was $1,000. Um, but, and specifically for trans women, the average monthly earnings were $1,000. Cis women averaged a little bit more at about $1,250 a month. And interestingly, cis men earned about $350 a month. Um, unfortunately, there were there are no trans men in the book, and potentially we can talk about this later because this is an issue that I'm taking up in my new research. Um, so the point is, um, for cam models in many countries around the world, because again, yes, it's important that we recognize that this is a transnational market, right? So for cam models in many countries in the world, $1,000 is more than they'd make at any of the jobs available to them. You know, an extra $1,000 a month can help families, especially in non-socialist democracies, acquire health care, right? The, the wages can help people pay rent, pay tuition, afford groceries, pay off debt, and, you know, and so on. So the wages earned camming allow people, you know, even if it's to take a vacation 
or to go out to dinner or to have a little extra money for leisure. You know, and I think it's also important to say that for many of the cam models that I spoke with, um, they described the work as pleasurable. And some models told me something to the effect of, you know, I get paid to have orgasms for a living, right? They get to explore their sexualities, meet new people. And I argue in the book that the online context is, is basically a psychological barrier. And so for many cam models, um, the computer becomes an effective psychological barrier, meaning models can experience more pleasure because the absence of physical contact makes them more comfortable and, again, makes camming appealing to people who might not otherwise turn to any form of sex work offline. Um, and so I guess kind of to sum, sum up a little bit here, um, so one of the main arguments I make in the book is that the global motivations to cam are complicated and sure are, are and are best understood using an inter intersectional lens. Um, so sure, the desire for decent wages motivates most webcam performers, right? It's the, what I argue in the book is that it's surely the failures of global capitalism and capitalist industries to provide workers with living wages that drive them to this industry, right? Um, however, when I spoke to, just to use some examples, um, when I spoke to trans women living, say, in the South, in the U.S., for example, they talked about how finding what folks often call, quote unquote, vanilla or square jobs is difficult. And due to, you know, frankly, rampant and legally sanctioned discrimination, it's often impossible for them to find vanilla work. Right. For the folks I spoke to, and I try to highlight this in the book and really center, for example, the experiences of people who have disabilities or live with chronic illness. Right. And so camming for them, like this work enables them to work because most of the labor, because most labor environments refuse to make accommodations for them. Right. I spoke with mothers and frankly, not surprisingly, not one man about flexible parenting and the costs of child care. I spoke to college students who are afraid to take out large loans just to attend school. And so they can. Right. The point is what motivates people to perform online sex work is surely about earning decent wages. But it's really critical that we also appreciate how you know, an individual's social position and subjectivity shapes their entry into the market. Um, and so I guess maybe I'll stop there. And, and what I enjoyed most is that you recognize the empowerment that can be had from camming while, while subtleties of oppression exist at the same time. It's not uh, either or, but in fact, both. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, I guess as a, as a queer feminist, I'm generally super skeptical of binaries, right? So in my work, my analyses are guided by Ronald Weitzer's um, polymorphous uh, paradigm, which is basically the theoretical standpoint that the experiences of sex workers are fluid, right? Like, and I think this extends to workers in a range of industries, right? Workers in any field are likely to have varied experiences of exploitation and job satisfaction, right? So sure, the camming industry is exploitative and workers face a range, 
of forms of discrimination in the market and, and most often based on their subjectivities and embodiments, right? I mean, camming is still capitalist labor, but their work also allows them, and this is what I think is important, simultaneously, their work also allows them to subvert really antiquated ideas about sexuality and thus also produces empowerment and pleasure. So it can most certainly be both. Excellent. And you're talking about embodiment and uh, this embodiment of a uh, of a camp model while they're in a, uh, uh, I don't know, a generalist career of, of how, how do they embody authenticity? How do how do they become authentic models in their in their performances on stage on camp? Great. Um, it's a great question. Um, so um, in the book, I use the term embodied authenticity frequently. Um, and so what's interesting about this particular field is that most customers perceive camming as authentic. Again, I'm positioning this against traditional pornography, right? So again, customers perceive camming as authentic. Cam models construct what, so- what scholars of sex work often call or what we call manufactured identities, right? Which means that they perform under screen names in order to protect themselves from doxing and, you know, and harassment. Um, in addition, to these manufactured identities, cam models, cam model shows are performative, right? Um, models do often have to engage in some amount of acting. However, cam models often spend copious time talking with customers online. And so I argue in many ways, they're being themselves, right? They're the rooms that the chat rooms that they're projecting uh, their their cells from these rooms are often their their real bedrooms, right? And from the perspective of a consumer, everything about the experience appears real, right? The model may be using this this stylized performance, but they're still offering an authentic presentation to customers, which is highly valuable in the world of erotic labor. So. I argue that cam modeling appeals to what, um, if listeners are familiar with cultural, with the cultural anthropologist, Catherine Frank, um, what she calls customers desire for quote unquote realness, right? Or what, again, uh, who I mentioned before, sociologist Elizabeth Bernstein um, has called bounded authenticity, right? And so as both have noted, especially in contemporary sex markets, customers want to feel like they're having an authentic sexual encounter that sure, while bounded by the economic exchange, it's also characterized by intimacy. So cam models provide what I call embodied authenticity to clients, right? In camming, clients access cam models' bodies in ways that they can't in traditional porn, right? So because these performances are not scripted in the way that porn is, because the performances are interactive, because the client can often direct the model, and critically because customers can ostensibly, I guess, verify the authenticity of cam models' pleasure, customers perceive camming as authentic. Um, I do think it's, it's important for me to also say, like, it's no secret to most customers that cam models are working, right? But the appeal of the erotic webcam market is that performers are perceived, and I think this is the real important part, the critical part, is that they're perceived as amateurs, right? As real people who have simply just turned on their webcams. So in many ways, the allure of camming uh, is that a viewer can get glimpses into the lives of, you know, strangers from all over the world. 
Yes, and uh, the lo- everything from the location in which they occur, everything from uh, a whole another industry of providing rooms for the girls to go in in Colombia and Romania and even in the United States uh, and Los- places like Los Angeles and, and otherwhere. Uh, but then also even what they provide in a menu of sorts, everything from the girlfriend experience to to a uh, a role playing game. That's right. That's right. And uh, and really, it's a it's a it's a social group. It's a collective of 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 women. Could you talk a little bit maybe about the Camelie that uh, is created from the uh, from this these models who are all working within the same industry? and and uh may play off of each other to to have a sense of family that's right um so it's interesting because i'll be honest right and i think this is probably an experience that most researchers have i didn't necessarily you know start this project thinking that i would be studying community right <laughs> um but what started to happen was that you know in the process of you know surveying and talking to people and spending a lot of time doing discourse analysis on uh, these web forums for cam models, it really struck me. And I said, look, there's this, and what I write about in the book is that there's also this really vibrant community of cam performers that's developed in tandem or alongside the camming industry. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to know a lot more about this. And so, and, and I love the language that they use and the colloquialism that they use, right? The, the, the camely, right? Um, is what many of the performers, uh, the language that many of the performers use to, to talk about this community that they formed. Um, and so in the book, I write about the camely as this loosely tied network of performers who provide one another with various forms of support and basically friendship. Um, And so I was starting to know cam models use um, web forums, social media like Twitter, and they even have conferences, right? So this is a very large conference once a year year called CamCom that takes place uh, in Florida, right? There's a range of events um, where folks can interact with one another, um, again, in this loosely structured social network that's been designed. And what I think is important by CAM performers for CAM performers, right? Um, In addition, CAM models, I also write about like, look, these folks also share an identity as sex workers, right? The stigma they face as a result of this marginalized identity is what motivates them to form and sustain, again, this camely. Um, Although I do write about uh, you know, the Camely is still dominated primarily by performers in the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, um, and the United States, right? So again, camming is, an in- camming is still an international industry, um, one that contributes um, to the evolving definition of what constitutes a community, right? Like, even though um, their interactions are taking place um, online, this is still, again, a vibrant community. Um, and so camp performers depicted the Camely um, to me as a space for people, you know, a lot of them talked a lot about friendship, right? And then also um, about support, right? And so the Camely um, is this place for them to find friendship and support, again, as a group of marginalized workers. 
the performers frequently describe themselves to me. This came up a lot um, as introverts um, who throughout their lives had trouble, say, making friends, you know, and a lot of the cam models also said that, you know, their sex worker identity you know, further complicated their ability to make friendships and participate in other communities. Right. And what I argue is that participation in the Camely builds social capital and that capital can benefit cam models. So we know that social scientists have noted the importance of several different types of social support, emotional, instrumental, informational, appraisal, right? Um, so as emotional support models, they're, they're always encouraging each other, trying to lift each other up, right? They'll, there are many examples in the book where models talk about driving traffic into each other's rooms, right? Um, which is an example of instrumental support. And again, I think this is really a really critical finding in that this is, this is still a capitalist industry. And I think sometimes when we think about workers within a capitalist market, we think about high levels of competition. And so I was really struck by the ways in which, again, these folks would spend a lot of time helping each other and assisting each other. Again, say maybe through driving traffic to each other's rooms, um, as another example, they provide information, like, and especially on the web forums, they provide a lot of information about everything from, you know, what's the best webcam, what's the best HD lighting, software, you know, they share strategies for everything from branding and marketing to dealing with trolls, right, and harassment, something that I talk uh, quite a bit about in the book. Um, in these ways, so performers provide one another informational support. Again, on the web forums, performers complain about bad days, um, you know, when they're making very little money and other performers provide very often constructive feedback um, so that the performer can kind of think reflexively and evaluate their own shows and make, a, you know, adjustments. Um, you know, I also do want to note, um, however, what I also found was that there are groups of people who are also marginalized from this camely. Right. Um, so what what I discuss in the book is that economics can create this, I guess, insider outsider dynamic, right? Where where cam models see, especially like those conferences I mentioned, they see those conferences and and summits um, as catering to really successful cam insiders. So think um, people like Alyssa, that cam model who I mentioned before, who has like, you know, this huge brand and this huge following, who again is making, you know, sometimes $25,000, $30,000 a month, right? Um, and so a lot of the models told me that they see, especially those conferences and the summits um, as catering to these really, this small group of successful CAM insiders who, again, unlike, you know, most of the part-time CAM models I spoke to can't afford to travel to conferences. Um, I think it's also important that, you know, political barriers and immigration policies around the world often impede, not encourage global travel and have the most constraining effects on people from the global South. You know, um, also in the online forums that CAM models use, these spaces are ostensibly, you know, feminist spaces, but they're also super exclusionary. So one particular forum that I spend a lot of time talking about, one of the chapters, uh, spent a number of years excluding trans women and cis men, right? And so the forum was only available to cis women. 
And so uh, I also explore the history of exclusion, cissexism and transphobia in feminism and in these kind of feminist spaces. So I argue that I've just documented yet another example, you know, here in the Camelie. Um, And crucially, what I think I've added to this history is documentation that the policing of boundaries um, occurs that in virtual communities, you know, just as it does in physical ones, right? And, And I think, you know, I'll kind of sum up here, but I think feminist spaces are really important. You know, however, as history has already shown us, you know, exclusionary feminist spaces harm some of the very people that those spaces purport to help. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and then even, even just the uh, social stratification that is created for, by the ranking system or rating system that creates a hierarchy and hides some of the cam girls while bringing others to the forefront of the, of the pages. Right. Um, and this is something that I that I talk quite a bit about in relationship to race and racism. Um, the CAM score is um, essentially a ranking system, as you noted, that one particular um, campsite, very, very popular, high-trafficked um, campsite uses to rank the models. Um, and unfortunately, what ends up happening is, as you noted, um, some CAM models, you know, end up at the top of the page <laughs> and some at the bottom, you know, and if you think if there are at any given point, say, you know, a thousand or 1200 models on one page, you know, being at the top of the page makes you highly visible, you know, being on the last page of profiles <laughs> decreases your invisibility. And I think, and again, I write that this is incredibly important um, because your placement on the website conditions your wages and how much money you're making. And all of this is is display work and how the, uh, how the performance is produced. What is this manufactured identity that you speak of? And uh, are there some categories of cameras who are less dependent on creating a manufactured identity? Yes. Right. So um, I guess perhaps I should start by saying a little bit, maybe giving listeners a little background on display work. Um, And then, yeah, and then I can connect it to these manufactured identities. So um, erotic uh, webcam performers engage in, um, and the concept of display work comes from the work of sociologist Ashley Mears um, and Catherine Connell. Um, So Mears and Connell have studied uh, what, again, what they call, what they term display work industries. And so here, think fashion modeling and uh, and in-sex work, think stripping and pornographic film acting. So these are all industries where people make money by selling performances in which they show off their bodies to paying customers, right? So And what's important, what they find in their work and what I've also found in mine is that display industries are the only capitalist markets in which the pay gap between women and men is inverted. 
Yeah. So in display industries, women have, and what I argue in the book is that in display industries like camming, women have more sexual capital than men and earn higher wages than men as a result. But what I think is important, what I hope is clear to readers is that this is not because they are women, right? They make more money because they perform femininity in valuable ways, right? So I argue that discourses of masculinity shape what um, sociologists of sexuality call sexual scripts, right? Um, and while women usually perform emotional labor, right, meaning um, they perform emotional labor for their clients, meaning they spend a lot of time talking with clients, right, alongside you know, performing sex acts, right? Whereas men are often expected by customers to meet what Michael Johnson has called, quote unquote, the ejaculation imperative. So in the book, um, I kind of, I talk about what I call drop, pop and roll, right? So there's almost this expectation that when a client or a customer, a customer comes into uh, into a man's camera room, they're just expected to drop their pants, get erect and masturbate. Right. So and this is important. Right. These sexual scripts are important because cam shows that feature more extensive conversation between a client and a cam model will be longer. Right. Um, if men are expected to basically and I don't mean to be crude here, but are expected to basically just rub, rub one out quickly, that's going to make the show shorter. Right. Um, and so the gendered sexual scripts and camming make women more likely to earn more money because their shows tend to last longer. Right? And so I argue that the structure of desire in the camming field privileges women. Um, but what I also think is important is that while the structure of desire in the camming field privileges women, it does so in really uneven ways. So because even though both trans women and cis women outpace men in earnings, their bodies are valued differently, right? Um, does that answer the question, I think? It, it does. And uh, I guess some of the things that go alongside that is uh, you found that men tended to make themselves younger in their profiles compared to women, although some of the, the women did as well. It really it, it depended. It was complex. It depended on the audience they were trying to uh, sell, sell their body work to. That's right. So as an example, um, and again, these are in, in this particular chapter, I talk even more about this idea of manufactured identities, right? And this, and this idea that, you know, um, w while folks are performing, right, um, they're also, they're performing gender and they're doing all of these things um, in incredibly normative ways or ways that meet the structure of the desire of in the camming field itself, right? So for example, you, you mentioned age, right? Um, this is something that overwhelmingly most of the cam models that I surveyed and interviewed change, right? The idea is that youth is generally valued in sex markets. Um, so to the extent that they can, very often cam models will shave a number of years um, off their um, off their their profiles, right, and off of their manufactured identities. Um, I did find, and something that I thought was interesting, not to digress too much, but um, was that it seems that men in this industry pay what I call this gendered age tax, right? There is a, a niche in this market and in other sex markets for older um, or more mature 
um, sex workers and, and especially in pornographic industries. And so in camming, there's a market for um, what they often call MILFs, right? I think a lot of folks are familiar with this, right? Moms that I'd like to fuck, right? These, these kind of, or they're labeled as mature categories. And so while women can often exploit kind of fetishes for um, older women by younger men, that, that isn't necessarily available um, to men. Um, in the industry. Another category that was really highly manufactured um, was sexuality. So um, for example, most of the cam models on their profiles identify as bisexual, um, even when they're not. And what I thought was interesting was that, and again, they, they do this for marketing purposes, right? The idea is that a lot of cam models said, this makes them appear more available, right? Like even though they don't have an interest <laughs> in dating any of their customers or clients, um, but that this makes them seem more available um, in terms of, again, marketing particular sexual services. This makes them open to, so if there are clients who have um, fantasies around threesomes, right? Like they're able to provide those services. One of the things that I write about what's interesting, again, kind of doing this gendered analysis is looking at, you know, when men identify as bisexual, they're met with a lot more resistance um, than, than, than the female cam models um, who are identifying as bisexual. There's this general mistrust and, and public demonization of men who identify as bisexual. Um, and then, um, again, I also talk about aspects of, of these identities that can't be manufactured, right? So thinking um, around race um, and ability um, and embodiments and aspects of, of again, of, of, of our bodies that we can't necessarily manipulate. Um, and kind of in sum, what I ultimately argue is that, you know, for people who don't, who can um, for people don't have to manufacture their identities, right? So the market really values thin, white, young bodies, primarily from the US and to the UK to a lesser extent. So people whose bodies, right, and identities and subjectivities fit within that, that, that trope of what is most, um, what has the most erotic capital, they don't really have to perform. Right now, remember, we were talking about embodied authenticity before. Right. So if you're not actually performing because you are 20 white, a woman, right, a cis woman um, and thin. Right. You don't actually have to perform as much. So your performances might be read as more authentic. So people who don't fit that those discourses or these ideas about what is erotically valuable, those folks do have to do more performative work, which can, even if they're making decent money, can really take away from their experience of pleasure and empowerment, right? This is something that came through with a lot of the discussions that I had, for example, with trans women um, who talked about, look, like, I make a lot of money, but I have to perform sexuality and perhaps maybe even perform a, a type of femininity that doesn't necessarily resonate with me. Very often being asked to perform sex acts, for example, that involve topping, um, that isn't in line with their actual sexual identities or sexual preferences. And so again, even if they're making decent wages, they continually told me that again, this took away from the potential um, for the work to be empowering or, or pleasurable. And, and at the end of the day, you, you gathered and collected your research around camming, but uh, I think your goal was to create more of a general theory of pleasure. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Um, so I, you know, I've been as somebody who has been writing in the area, the sociology of sexualities for a while. Um, you know, I've been struck over the years by the absence of discussions around, frankly, actual sex. And then also pleasure, right? So, um, you know, I'm thinking here about sociologists like Jason Orne and others who've been writing about a kind of developing and furthering rather this kind of carnal sociology where we, you know, place more emphasis on pleasure, right? But for me, I want us to step out of the the domain of sex to think about to think about pleasure. Um, and so, yeah. So, I, I mean, to me, sociology has surprisingly had very little to say about the importance of pleasure in shaping social action, right? The ways that society constructs what pleasure is and, and how we experience pleasure, right? So sociologists here, I'm thinking of in particular of Adam Isaiah Green, right, has focused on the role of sexual desire in social life. But I argue, look, sexual desire and pleasure are different, so the theory of pleasure I developed is focused not only on what motivates sexual conduct, but on how desires for pleasure are ingrained within all social interactions, right? Pleasure can be found in, you know, every, in, in all areas of our lives, not just in our bedrooms, right? Um, as an example, people with asexual or ace identities, for example, may not desire sex, but certainly have and maintain pleasurable relationships, right? So I guess I want to argue that we need a theory of pleasure that's applicable to all areas of social life, not just sex, right? Um, I argue pleasure is embedded in complex social interactions in everyday life. And I want to be clear, it's not just that the desire to maximize pleasure and reduce pain drives social behavior, right? This, this kind of Freudian idea is super simplistic. But I want to argue that pleasure still gives meaning to social interactions and experiences. So yes, we need a sociological theory of pleasure to unpack the ways that pleasure both motivates human behavior and, you know, and mediates social interactions, a sociological theory of pleasure would ask scholars to focus on how social forces, social institutions, and culture construct hegemonic discourses, which then, you know, regulate experiences of pleasure, right? This, this theory of pleasure could help us, you know, contextualize pleasure and account for space and location in shaping experiences of pleasure, you know, and, and again, this theory could help us also examine the complex ways that hierarchical social systems and individual subjectivities influence people's access to and experiences of pleasure. So, you know, in, in thinking about, well, how do you make this applicable to, you know, what we might, what we often call general sociology, right? Um, so to all sociologists then, I want to ask a couple of questions, right? How does pleasure shape the social interactions and experiences we have across or in various social institutions? You know, and, and conversely, how do various social institutions shape how we understand what is pleasurable, right? What has been society's role in regulating pleasure, 
right? So again, what would it look like for sociologists, right? Again, folks that we we understand as generalists, right? And those, and also those individuals in sociological subfields, what would it look like for all of these sociologists to place pleasure at the center of their analyses? How would, you know, just I'm thinking some specific examples here might be helpful, right? Like how would the how would the sociology of pleasure influence scholars who study I don't know, the family or politics, right? So for family scholars, what is the role of pleasure in household decision-making and the division of labor? How does pleasure mediate family dynamics and, and most critically, power relations? Right? Sociologists um, have already shown us, for example, um, that emotions play an essential and critical role in collective action, Right. Um, and that I'm thinking in the social movements literature that, that looks at how effective and, you know, in sexual ties can often even influence why people join and remain involved in protests. Right. Like why people show up at, at, at a rally. Right. So, you know, so for political sociologists, how does pleasure motivate and shape political behavior and participation? So I guess in, in developing this sociological theory of pleasure, um, I make a few key arguments, right? And I and I and I argue that the central task of major social institutions has been to control people's, you know, I guess pleasures of the flesh. You know, religious institutions, the family, the government, you know, medicine and, and the media all function in various ways to control our desire for pleasure. You know, and, and what I think is interesting is that each institution exerts control in really interesting ways. So religious institutions promise salvation in exchange for the sacrifice of pleasure. Medical institutions tell us that our bodies and our survival depend on the sacrifice of pleasure. Patriarchal families are built upon the standard of monogamy, which often tell people to sacrifice pleasure in the interest of the, you know, effective maintenance of the structure of the family. You know, right, I'm a parent, right? As a parent, parents must sacrifice pleasure for their children, you know, and, and, and partners must sacrifice pleasure for one another. The, the economy tells us to sacrifice pleasure in order to be successful. You know, our political institutions require the sacrifice of pleasure for citizenship, please, and the media, right? They provide us with scripted pleasure so that we can live vicariously through performers in film and television and music. So the point is that societies are built around sacrificing pleasure, right? And I argue the routine sacrifice of pleasure is a hallmark of social life. Right. The sacrifices of pleasure provide structure and order to society and its institutions, yet the sacrifice of pleasure is embedded with power. And in this process, I argue human freedom is limited and people are subjugated. So, so the bottom line is that I hope for readers and people who are listening now that my focus on pleasure throughout the book will help people certainly you know, understand better the motivations for engaging in online sex work, right? Like my immediate, you know, uh, focus, um, as well as the complex, you know, social interactions between cam models and customers. However, I'd like to argue that, again, the implication of these analyses 
are not limited to sex work markets. And so I truly believe that a sociological theory of pleasure can provide brand new insights into understanding motivations for social behavior and assist sociologists in analyzing social interactions in everyday life. And again, in a wide range of of complex social institutions. So, you know, I'd like to see my book. I do. No, I see my book um, in many ways as an invitation to sociologists to open up perhaps even an entirely new subfield of sociology, right? That we might call the sociology of pleasure. And Dr. Jones, I that stood out to me definitely as I was reading through your book. Yes, I was reading a book about camming and about uh, the sex work industry, but uh, every turn of the book, I, I thought to myself, how how could I apply pleasure to what I'm working on right now with uh, with pageantry work, uh, particularly at this festival where uh, tulip queens are are doing bodily work to display work to become the next tulip queen or to Mm -hmm. become one of her uh, royal attendants. But uh, is it oppressive while also providing pleasure? I definitely think so. If it wasn't pleasurable, I don't know that they would be participating uh, in the, uh, in the activity. Absolutely. So I, I thank you for, for this publication, and I hope listeners take the time to read through this and see the book for everything that it is on on a more of a general theory of pleasure. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're at that point where I, I, I must ask, what are you working on now? Where where has this book taken you to your next pro- uh, in your next project? Absolutely. So um, as I noted before, um, in doing this work, I was really, uh, to be honest, disappointed um, that I didn't um, engage with or talk to um, any trans masculine um, and folks who who identify themselves to me um, as non-binary. Um, but especially I was really struck by this underrepresentation of, of, of trans men. Um, and so this led me to kind of do more research and looking specifically more broadly at queer and trans porn. Um, and then also at a lot of the literature and research um, around trans sex workers more broadly. And what I ultimately found was that overwhelmingly all of the literature um, on transgender sex workers focuses on trans feminine folks and, and almost exclusively on HIV, right? And much of this literature takes a public health framework, um, which isn't inherently problematic, right? But I think we need to treat people's lives more holistically, right? And instead of seeing, in this case, trans feminine and, and trans women um, as a kind of public health problem to be solved, I think we need to better understand their experiences um, as workers and as human beings um, in our society. Um, And so again, I wanted to better understand this kind of underrepresentation or what I was seeing as this underrepresentation of trans masculine folks um, in various sex industries. Um, And so I recently launched a new project where I conducted interviews with trans masculine and non-binary escorts. Um, So I reached a point of saturation after about uh, 34 interviews. 
And again, I have so much amazing, rich, wonderful data. And while it's a you know relatively small sample, there is nothing published in the sex work literature in particular. There is nothing written about the experience, again, specifically of transmasculine and non-binary um, full service providers. Um, and so now that I've collected and analyzed that data, I am writing feverishly <laughs> um, and trying to get um, some articles out there based on this new work. In an effort to help better understand a population that is largely hidden, or at least it appears that they uh, were hidden based on what you were saying. That's right. So thank you for for your work. Uh, This has been an episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I had Dr. Angela Jones here to talk about camming, money, power, and pleasure in the sex work industry, a book she published with New York University Press. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. 